I'm writing for the kid that's easily overlooked. That's what I think about. Like, for whatever reason, they're overlooked. I don't want them to feel overlooked because I know what that feels like. So I'm definitely writing to my younger self for sure. Geek or athlete, misfit or metalhead. Being a kid in school usually means being vulnerable and probably insecure about something. Socially, kids are still figuring things out. But when you find your friends at that raw age, the bonds run deep. Those connections can last a lifetime. Even so, some kids never stop feeling out of place. Some kids get left behind. Erin Entrada Kelly remembers deeply what that felt like from her own experiences growing up. It's a time she takes a lot of inspiration from in her writing. A lot of my books have characters who are lonely, who are trying to figure out their way, who don't feel seen in the world, who don't know how to use their voice. And I want to write books for those kids because I want a safe way for them to kind of navigate all that stuff. Erin is a Newbery Award-winning author known for titles such as Hello Universe, We Dream of Space, the Marisol Rainey series, and many more. In today's episode, she shares the importance of connecting to overlooked children. She'll talk about how her childhood depression shaped her adult writing and why Erin thinks it's essential for adults to stop looking at kids as incomplete vessels. She'll also drop some plot hints about her new novel that dives into the world of sci-fi. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Let's start with you as a kid. Like, what was eight-year-old Aaron and Trotta Kelly like? I wasn't really shy, but I was quiet. I was introspective. I was very sensitive. So I was often sad, and I didn't really know why I was sad. But, for example, I accidentally killed a housefly once, and I cried, and I gave it a funeral, and I put a little <laughs> tissue over it, and I was so sad that I had killed this housefly. And that kind of encapsulates what kind of kid I was. But it's a tricky way to go through the world, right? Because there's so many things that can hurt your feelings. So I spent a lot of time um, in my room reading books and writing books. And I really loved writing because it allowed me to create a world however I wanted. I had full control. I was afraid of a lot of things like Marisol in my books. I had a lot of worries. I worried a lot as a kid. I would go to bed and just lay in bed and worry and think and worry about things that happened that day, things that are going to happen tomorrow. So that was pretty much my vibe when I was a, a little kid. <laughs> and you were the younger sister, right? So you had what was your what was your older sister like as a kid? My older sister is has always kind of been my complete opposite. We're very close, but she is outgoing. She was always cheerful, smiling, had a lot of friends, played sports. She was a cheerleader. She, you know, wow. her room was full of trophies. <laughs> uh, my room had no trophies, by the way. 
They don't give you trophies for staying in your room reading books for eight hours, you know? Um, although they should. Um, <laughs> it's hard to do. Yeah, it is. So she was very much my opposite. And, and I perceived her as fearless. You know, all the things that made me afraid didn't seem to bother her. Mm, yeah. What about as you grew into your, like, your middle school personality? Did you... Do you hold on to the way that you were those traits or I'm interested in what you were like during the the time of life that you predominantly write for now, middle school? To be honest, I was a very troubled girl. So all those things that I described when I was in elementary school, being easily wounded and kind of moving through the world like an open wound, I like to think of it as, is it's a difficult way to exist. And so when trauma or bad things happen to you. I already had, I didn't have a, a very strong um, exterior to deal with all the things that happen in life. So in middle school, I was very troubled and I got more troubled as time went on. So middle school was kind of the beginning. And actually, one of the reasons why I love writing middle schoolers is because I feel like That was the age when I was about 11 or 12 where I started really suffering from chronic depression. And I feel like if someone had intervened at that time, which no one did, it could have put me on a different path. So whenever I write books, that's what I think about because I I want my books to be at least one thing that is on that path to get a young person before they have to suffer too much through high school and even like adulthood, right? Like if you step in early and you can like re-retract someone's life and then prevent all that suffering. And I didn't have that. So I feel like that's one of the reasons why a lot of my books have characters who are lonely, who are trying to figure out their way, who don't feel seen in the world who don't know how to use their voice. And I want to write books for those kids because I want a safe way for them to kind of navigate all that stuff. Yeah. And you you were Filipino-American living in a community where there weren't any or many kids with similar experiences. So was there a lot of bullying that contributed to that depression and loneliness? When I was in elementary school, I wasn't bullied as much as I was approached with like, what are you? You know, that question and just feeling like an other, but it wasn't bullying. I think it was just kids literally asking me, what are you? Because I didn't know. But in middle school, things shifted and into high school. When I got to high school, I spent much of the beginning of my freshman year hiding in the library during lunch because I was being bullied so badly. So it was that, a combination of many other things, a lot of other traumas that I was experiencing at the time, kind of just compounded one on top of the other. You know, and I had great friends. I had two best friends. I didn't have like a ton of friends, but I had two very close friends. But they were also kids, you know. There were no adults or there were no people in a position to really help me. I did not have that. Books can do that for people, though, who don't have that. Do you remember like some of the very first books that you were attracted to? 
some of my like very, very early books. Um, I loved Dr. Seuss. I loved the monster at the end of this book. I loved fairy tale books, all those kinds of things. As I got older in elementary school, I loved um, Sideways Stories from Wayside School by Lewis Sacker. And I started reading Judy Bloom. I was probably about eight, nine, ten. I loved Sweet Valley High. You know, but back then there wasn't as much of a selection as there is today, right? So Judy Bloom was and kind of still is the reigning queen of of middle grade. So I read a lot of her books. I really, I really enjoyed a realistic fiction, which is what I write. So even from that young age, I had trouble sometimes getting into fantasy. I was much more interested in the real life stories. For you, it sounds like really reading and maybe writing too were like some escape from feeling what you're describing, which was really isolated, you know? Absolutely, yes. Some people you talk to and they're like, oh, I didn't discover I was a writer till later on. Like you, it seems like you were, you knew you were like born to write. And that is that pretty accurate? Like you, you had that revelation earlier on? Absolutely. I feel like I was born writing, you know? And for me, writing, writing was an escape for one reason, because I thought, Oh, I can make the world however I want. I can write whatever characters I want. It's the power in that creation was really compelling to me. But also sometimes when things were really, really hard, and this is especially true in high school, which was probably the lowest point of my life, whenever I would feel that sense of, I don't want to be here anymore, I would think to myself, one day I'm going to be an author and none of this will matter and I'm going to write books and I won't be in high school anymore. And I'm going to be doing something much better than this, and <laughs> much more important than this. And I believed that. Yeah, I had like an anchor. Yeah, it was it was really my security blanket that I could just kind of wrap myself up in. And I think that's what dreams do for people when they have when you know when you have a big dream and you want to do something bigger than where you are. It can serve as a security blanket for you when when times are really tough because you feel like you have an escape. Did you share that dream? Like, did your sister and your mom, like, did they know that's what she wants to do when she's older? Yes. Anyone who was in my life knew that that's what I wanted to do and that's what I was and that I wrote and I was going to be a writer. I was one of those, like, you know, a lot of writers, they write secretly and they don't want to share it with people. But I was all too happy to share my stories with like people close to me, my my friends and family. I was proud, although I would probably have never used that word when I was a kid. I was proud because it was the thing that I was good at. And as a kid who never felt like they were good at anything and who didn't get a lot of like praise and compliments for things like my sister did, right? Because writing is something that people don't see. So it was the thing I was good at. So I was all too happy to share it with people close to me. Have you ever heard an accordion play? They're not the prettiest instruments to listen to, she says, but I don't like that there are some instruments that are considered prettier than others. I feel like those instruments are always listened to, like the guitar or the piano, but it isn't fair that they should be listened to all the time only because someone has decided they're prettier. The accordion has just as much sound. It's different than the other instruments. I like that it's different. That's what makes it important. I can't stop staring at her. I think I'm the accordion. She laughs long and hard. I can't help but feel ashamed. I think she's laughing at me. Why is that funny? 
I'm only laughing because, well, I think I'm the accordion too, she says. I don't think she could be any further from an accordion. You're not an accordion, I tell her. You're something else entirely. You're the violin. Her smile fades away. Violins are so sad, I'd hate to be a violin. Yet I know with absolute certainty that this is exactly the instrument that should be used to describe Kalinda. And you're not an accordion, she tells me. You're a drum. She watches me, waiting for my response, but I have no words. I only know suddenly that I want to take her hand, and so I do. That's a passage from Case and Callender's 2018 novel, Hurricane Child. Set in the U.S. Virgin Islands, the story follows a young girl named Caroline, who was born during a hurricane and is supposedly marked with bad luck as a result. Throughout her journey, Caroline's bright side is brought to life as she slowly discovers her feelings toward a young girl that recently moved to her town. For Erin, that was a profound personal connection and furthered her commitment as an author to write about the emotional lives of her characters. I identified with Caroline so much. Caroline in the book um, is bullied at school. She has very few friends. She feels very alone in the world until her friend Kalinda arrives. But Caroline and I are on the surface very different. Caroline lives in the Virgin Islands. Caroline is a young black girl. Her mother is out of the picture. None of those things describe me. But when I read books like this where I seem to have nothing in common with the character and then the character moves me so deeply and I feel so connected to them. It just reminds me of how universal humanity is, right? That I can connect to this little girl who lives in the Virgin Islands and whose life is very, very different from mine and still feel a kinship because we all know what it's like to be lonely. We all know what it's like to want to be better than we are. We all know what it's like to feel like we're not good enough. And it just reminds me that being human is a universal experience in many ways. I mean, obviously it's unique, but it's also universal. And when I write, that's what I want to tap into. I want my characters to be unique enough that they feel like real characters that could just walk right out of the book, but also universal enough that readers connect with them and feel seen by them. That's what I strive for. I want my books to reflect the interior life of the character. That's the number one most important thing for me. And in this passage, it's probably my favorite passage in all middle grade literature because in this moment, Caroline, who has suffered so much through this book and who has such a difficult life and has such a low opinion of herself and is so sad and lonely, in this moment, she feels seen by someone else. As we've heard, Erin never wavered from her big dream of being a writer. But there were some sharp bends in the road ahead. I had a daughter when I was 19, so she's 26 now. So during all this, I'm also, I've also got a daughter. I had a lot of support, so that's good, like um, family support. And I was also going to school. So because I got pregnant when I was 18 years old, Obviously, that kind of makes it difficult to go to school full time. So I take one class per semester. So it took me like 10 years to get my bachelor's degree. 
The tenacity of that is pretty mind-blowing. And even with that incredible perseverance, that commitment to her big dream, Erin's career began with a bit of a detour. My dream was always to write books, but I knew as I got older, you know, in high school, I realized, okay, when I was a young kid, I thought, oh, I'll just write a bestseller and that'll be it, you know? But then, of course, you realize as you get older, oh, wait, that's not how that works. So I knew I would have to have a job that involved writing. And I knew that I would have to write books like on my own time and then try to get them published. So I knew that I couldn't just be a published author. So I tried to figure out, okay, what can I do that involves words and something that I'm really interested in? So that's how I went into journalism. After nearly a decade of dedication to her career, education, and her daughter, Erin went on to get her Master of Fine Arts. Finally, she could devote herself to writing fiction. But when she did eventually take the leap, she initially thought she was going to write for adults. The novels that I would start were all intended for adults. And then around page 50, they would just kind of like lose momentum and I would lose interest. And I just thought I cannot finish a book. So I started writing short stories and those I was able to finish. And I started submitting them and they started getting published. Ultimately, I've published about 30 short stories. I think I don't have time to write them anymore, unfortunately. But at some point I realized that these short stories had a very common thread and they all had characters who were between the ages of eight and 12 and they were all coming of age stories. They were all about moments in these characters' lives. And I just realized, I thought, why am I always writing about young people? And the short stories were obviously meant for adults, not not kids. But I thought that is so interesting that I'm just really gravitating toward usually 12 is the age that I would write about. And I thought there's something there. And then I thought maybe I should be writing for and about 12 year olds. So then I started diving into middle grade literature and going to the bookstore and like looking at books for that age group and reading and realizing that the world of children's literature was much more vast than I realized at the time. And now it's even more vast. I mean, this this was years ago. So this was I was probably in like my late 20s or so. This was a long time ago, but that's what started it. I think that was such an important time for you to, it sounds like those years. So I think it's like you're kind of writing to yourself. Do you feel like that sometimes? Like you're writing, you're writing? Yes, I, I am. And I think that, that there's all different kind of writers, obviously. And some writers don't think about the readers when they're writing, but I always do. The reader is always with me and the reader is usually me. It's not me literally, but it's me, (laughs) what I felt like when I was like, there's a reason why most of my characters are kind of introspective, quiet kids who are trying to find their way. I'm writing for the kid that's easily overlooked. That's what I think about. Like for whatever reason they're overlooked. I don't want them to feel overlooked because I know what that feels like. So I'm definitely writing to my younger self for sure. I was thinking, you know, I have not read all of your books, but I've read many. And, um, in We Dream of Space, like for me, like when I was younger, um, I think Bird is the character. And I feel like you're talking about just feeling seen. And obviously, I mean, there were many characters certainly who who looked like me in the books that I read. But just my issues and stuff with body image and how that was really not talked about. It just had that, there's this moment in the book where she like notices that she can't eat the junk food or something. And then it's like, the mom's like, but the boys can, they're growing boys. And it made me feel the way that I think Judy Bloom, and if, you know, Judy Bloom being your 
sort of your your model, you know, I think it had that same effect of like, oh, that would have been something that I could have said like, yeah, I, I also was like kind of looking around, like wondering like, why didn't we have junk food? Why weren't we allowed? Why wasn't I allowed to have it? Why couldn't we, why was I eating, you know, whatever after school? And I think that that was really a moment for me in reading through your books. No, thank you. Thank you. That's my, my goal is always to, I want to, it's kind of a tricky line, especially when you're writing for young people, because you don't want to lecture and you don't want to exactly spell out this is what I'm trying to say here. So there's a lot of subtext. And I always hope that readers pick up on the subtext because there is that scene where Bird can't eat the junk food that her brothers eat. And the mother, like you said, says, well, they're they're growing boys, they need to eat. And it's confusing for girls, right? Because you're like, okay, well, I'm also growing. I don't understand why it's different. So thank you for that. Drawing on this great depth of emotion that you had as a kid, you give a lot of credit to and have a lot of faith in children's processing of life in the world. And on the other end of that spectrum is this perception of kids as incomplete vessels, which is, it's a term I've heard you use before. I'd love to hear you expand a little on that. One of the missteps that adults make is they view children as incomplete vessels that we need to fill with all our knowledge. And But the fact of the matter is kids are complete and complex at every age. They're just different, right? So in other words, when a kid falls in love at, let's say, age 11, to us as adults, we just kind of dismiss it. Oh, it's puppy love. But when you're 11, that's not what it feels like. It feels very real to you. And it is real to you. And the relationship may last one day (laughs) or one week, right? But it's just as meaningful to that 11-year-old as our relationships are as adults. So my goal is I don't ever want to be patronizing or condescending. I respect young people at every age that they're at. As a matter of fact, when I do school visits, I always ask if anyone has any questions and I make sure that they know they can ask me whatever they want because they usually will ask how old I am and I can always see the teachers get nervous. But the fact of the matter is in their life, age is very important. They're always asking each other how old they are. How old are you? How old? It doesn't have the same context for them as it does for us. And I want them to be able to ask questions that they feel like are important without kind of this, you know, adult, lens, if that makes sense. So I always try to, and I think I do, respect young people as being complete and having opinions and values and beliefs. And they may be unsophisticated compared to our adult values and beliefs, but that doesn't make them any less real or any less valuable. Yeah. And I, I mean, thinking about to when I grew up and you grew up, the notion of like validating a kid's worldview as being something that was widespread is just, can't even think about it. I mean, Judy Bloom, she was hip to it, you know, back then, but I don't know about anybody else really. Well, yeah, because you think back of all the times you were dismissed as a kid, that hurt. And I mean, it just made you feel like your opinions don't even matter, but they do matter. It's just a feeling of feeling devalued when people just dismiss your ideas or your thoughts or your opinions because you're a kid. I remember what that feels like, and I don't ever want to do that. And also another thing, 
when you're a kid, I, I always recognized when adults were being hypocrites, which is often because we are often hypocritical. And that used to drive me bananas when I was a kid. I just couldn't stand it. That's another thing with Redream of Space that I wanted to touch on is how adults can tell you to act one way and they act a completely different way and how for kids that is not, it's not kosher, right? Like it's not the, not the way to go. So I feel like it is kind of a, a newer thing. But it's very hard to also practice. Like it's one thing to say, but it's another thing to believe that. So for, for them to have the opportunity when you're doing visits or in their books, and they're reading the books to feel that level of like respect and value is something very special. Aaron's mission to validate and make children, especially the lonely ones, feel heard and understood extends beyond the words in her stories and her approach to school visits. She's also very active online, sharing and celebrating what her readers share with her. Erin has created this culture among her readers because she's instilled the trust in them that she is listening and she wants to hear what they have to say. I was curious if she had any stories in particular that stood out to her. I got a, a really wonderful note from this young reader who read Blackbird Fly, which is my first book. It's the most autobiographical of the ones that I've written. Apple, the, the main character in that book, is, is friendly. She's being bullied and she has no friends. And Apple goes to the library at lunch to avoid things. And this girl wrote to me and said that every day she would see this, this girl sitting all by herself on a bench and she never had any friends. And because she read Blackbird Fly, she thought, I wonder, you know, why she doesn't have any friends. And like, so I'm going to be her friend. So she went and sat with her on the bench and they became friends. And it turned out the girl had no friends. She was all alone in the world. And this book kind of inspired her to, because she thought about Apple. She was like, that could be Apple sitting on that bench. And I was, I was very moved by that. And I've had kids who have been victims of bullying reach out to me and tell me about their experiences and how how they felt seen. I mean, they didn't use that language, but in their language, they said, you know, that they felt like they weren't alone. So I've heard all kinds of things from all kinds of different readers and a lot of adult readers, honestly, I hear from a lot of adult readers, especially with We Dream of Space in particular, because that's a toxic family dynamic, right, that the kids live in. And I intentionally wanted to write about a family that's problematic and that's not a healthy family environment. And I wanted to write about a family where it's not that the parents don't love the children. It's just that they're caught up in their own drama. So they're not being the best parents they can be. And the children are trapped in that. And it, it was important for me to write that because there's so many young people who are experiencing that at home. And I want all children to be able to see their home life reflected back at them or a life that's different from theirs reflected back at them. So I've heard from adult readers who tell me that's what their home life was growing up. Their parents argued all the time and where it was like a very stressful environment and that they feel seen as an adult, which is also very meaningful to me. And one, one recent one that actually made me cry was I did school visits when... Um, one of my Marisol Rainey books came out, and those are for the younger kids, right? So early elementary kids. I love them. Thank you. <laughs> I love them, too. I did a school visits, obviously, where I talk about Marisol. And afterward, I got this message from a mom, 
And it said that she had been wanting her daughter to read and her daughter refused to read books. She didn't like reading. And it was really upsetting to her mom because, you know, as a mom, she wants her kid to, to read books. I understand that. And after the school visit, because the little girl thought I was so cool, <laughs> I'm finally cool, she um, wanted to read the book. She wanted to read the Marisol Rainey book. And she did. And then she read the other Marisol Rainey book. And now she wants to read more books like that. So basically, the mom said that I never, she said, I never dreamed one author visit would have such an impact on my kid's life that now she's reading constantly. And I thought, even if she never reads another one of my books again, oh my gosh, what a gift that I triggered something in this kid to read books. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What about other school visits? Like, is there ever anything that really stands out to you and makes you think this is a place that is building a healthy culture of reading? I've had the vast majority of my school visits have been that experience, I have to say. One of the most memorable school visits I had was in Dallas at St. Thomas Aquinas School. And I'm still in touch with the librarian there, actually, the, who arranged it. Like, we still communicate because I can't really explain what it was. They were just responsive. They were full of ideas. They were enthusiastic. I talked to many grades there. Um, I think I talked fourth through eighth. And I usually don't, I don't do too many uh, over seventh grade. So I was nervous, but then the eighth grade came in because, you know, eighth grade, they start getting scary around eighth grade. Yeah. So the eighth <laughs> graders came in, but they had posters. We love you. And then at the end, one of the kids asked if they could give me a hug. And I said, yes, of course. I said, yes. She hugged me. And then all the kids stood up to hug me. And it was like, a 200 person hug. Oh my it's, gosh. <laughs> it was amazing. It's one of my favorite memories, but I have to say the vast majority of my school visits have been positive and have been like enthusiastic reading environments. The only time I get I get nervous at school visits is sometimes I go to schools where they're very very um I don't know if strict is the right maybe strict is the right word where they don't want the kids to talk out of turn. They don't want the kids to wiggle. They want the kids to sit still and be very, very quiet. And I actually don't like that because they just kind of are sitting there like little robots, you know, and just listening and they're behaving. But part of the thing I love about school visits is the interaction and we're all laughing and we're all engaged. It's not like the theater and you're the show, you know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I like, they sometimes get rowdy, uh, my school visits, because because that's what I like, but that's fine. Like, why not? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So those are the only ones where I get, and there's not many like that. Usually it's a great balance of, of respectful, but also engaged. I love that image of like all the, the kids, the 200 person hook. It was amazing. <laughs> Until now, Aaron's skill and outsider perspective have mostly been applied to stories about real people in real relatable situations, just like the stories she liked to read as a kid. But in her new middle grade novel, coming out in 2024, she's taking that idea of being out of place and applying it with a new wrinkle, time travel. And I'm really excited about it because I love time travel. I mean, I haven't actually time traveled yet, but <laughs> <laughs> I love the concept. Yes. 
And I'm really excited about it. It's also set in 1999. So I've been living a 1999 life for the past many weeks. I'm like mired in 1999. You know, my books share a similar theme, I think as many authors books do, but I never want to write the same, keep writing the same book. So I'm really excited about something new. Yeah. Also, is there dealing with Y2K since it's 1999? There is absolutely, Y2K is a big deal because the main character, Michael, he has a lot of Y2K anxiety. Um, in fact, that's one of the threads in the book. Um, he's very worried about Y2K. And basically one day he um, is walking in his apartment complex and he sees this teenage boy who looks odd and out of place. And to make a long story short, this isn't a spoiler because it happens very early in the book. The boy is from the future. So Michael really wants to know everything that's going to happen, especially with Y2K. So he doesn't have to worry anymore. So it's kind of like a metaphor in a way of living in the present and not worrying about what might happen, which is something I did a lot when I was a kid. And Michael has to learn that too. I'm very excited for that. I love that idea. Um, if you could go back and give your like 12 year old self or whatever was the most, like the height of your anxiety, some advice, what would you, what would you tell her? Honestly, if I could go back and talk to my 12 year old self, I think I would just say you will be okay. I think that would be enough. You will be okay. For Aaron's reading challenge, Here to There, she's taking inspiration from her experience connecting to characters that, on the surface, she didn't seem to have all that much in common with. Okay, so my reading challenge is to read a book about a character from outside the U.S., because presumably most of your listeners are probably in the U.S. And the reason is because going back to Hurricane Child, and being able to connect with someone whose life may look very different from your own and finding those connections with those characters is really important. And I love when that happens to me with characters. So I wanna share some books with readers who feature characters who are living in or from or leaving a country outside of the US. You can check out Aaron's challenge and all of our author reading challenges at thereadingculturepod.com. Before we sign off, let's hear from another incredible Aaron who, like Aaron and Trotta Kelly, is focused on truly connecting with all of her students. Today's Beanstack featured librarian is Aaron Bechdahl, a middle and high school librarian at Beaver Area School District in Pennsylvania. She told us about her go-to author recommendation for her students. I love mysteries. So the first book that I read by Jennifer Lynn Barnes was The Naturals. And since then, I mean, our copy is so beat up here in the library because I'm constantly like, oh, you're looking for a really good like psychological thriller. Here you go. We start with The Naturals and then pretty soon they're on book four and they're like, wait, it ended. And so then, okay, let's go to The Fixer and let's go to... Um, Little White Lies, I think that was the next series. Like, so we just keep going with her because the kids are just loving her style. Um, the final Inheritance Games book, when it came out, I had a lineup here. Like, do you have it? Do you have it? Do you have it? And yes, we have it, but I get it first because I uh, she didn't release arcs of it. 
And so I didn't get to read it before the kids got it. And I was like, nope. I get first dibs and then you can all all have access. So my go-to is Jennifer Lynn Barnes. This has been The Reading Culture. You've been listening to our conversation with Erin and Trotta Kelly. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie. And currently I'm reading Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. And You Are Here, Connecting Flights, edited by Ellen O. If you've enjoyed today's show, please show some love and rate, subscribe, and share the reading culture among your friends and networks. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And join us on social media at The Reading Culture Pod for some awesome giveaways. And be sure to check out the Children's Book Podcast with teacher and librarian Matthew Winner. It's a book podcast made for kids ages 6 to 12 that explores big ideas and the way that stories can help us feel seen, understood, and valued. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.